Good morning. Okay, we will get started shortly. And I am going to be showing a video this morning. And it's not because I didn't prepare for the Sunday school lesson. But anyway, when you think about Nineveh, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? Jonah, all right? And so Jonah went to Nineveh to uh, tell them that they had to change their wicked ways. And much to Jonah's chagrin, they did. And so then this meant now that the judgment that had been uh, forecast for Nineveh was not going to take place. Well, the book of Nahum is written in the first uh, chapter. It talks about an oracle concerning Nineveh. So it's written about Nineveh. Nineveh is mentioned three times in the book of Nahum. Nahum is preaching to the Jews in Judea about Nineveh. And Nineveh now was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was the empire that was uh, ruling during the time. See, what was the last uh, minor prophet that we studied before Nahum? What was the, Micah, all right, okay. Somebody was listening. So anyway, Micah was, during Micah's time, Sennacherib was the king of, of uh, Assyria. He was headquartered in Nineveh. And he then went on down into Jerusalem, into Israel, and he tried to capture the, uh, the cities. He was able to capture all of the cities except for Jerusalem. Now, King Hezekiah, the Israeli king, he built the tunnel to bring the water in from the spring so that when they were being besieged by the Assyrians, they would have water. And so I'm just trying to get this, where Nineveh fits in and how it fits in. The video that I'm going to show is a video that's done by the name of Joel Kramer. Joel Kramer is a biblical archaeologist who is based in Israel. He's an archaeologist who takes the Bible, events in the Bible, and then goes and tries to find places in Israel that substantiate what the Bible has to say. Contrary to most of the archaeologists which are working today, which will discover something in Israel, and then they go to the Bible to show why the Bible's account is wrong, because it doesn't match up with this. Now, Joel Kramer takes exactly the opposite view on this. And Joel Kramer, we met him when we were in Israel, and he took us into one of the caves of Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. He had been doing work on this, so he was able to take our group up there, and we were able to go into this cave. Now, Doug Bookman, who has been um, guiding these tours, thought that since he had had a chance to go into these caves with uh, Joel Kramer, that this gave him free license to go in whenever he wanted to. Well, last Christmas, he had a group from Redeemer Bible Church up in uh, Minnetonka up there, and he was in the cave, 
and the authorities came in, and it cost Bookman $750-some dollars fine for being in a place where he wasn't supposed to be. So anyway, uh, we have the video of Joel Kramer, and if you want to move up closer, uh, I don't have any problem with that. That will happen at least one more time. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. 
note the river that's going through it. city flows the Tigris River, and within the ruins are two mounds. The smaller but more sacred of the two is called Nebuunis, which in Arabic means the prophet Jonah. This preserves the name of the Israelite prophet in the Bible. The Lord had decided to destroy Nineveh because of the wickedness of the people. Only the more than 120,000 people living there didn't know about this destruction. So the Lord had compassion on them, and he sent them Israelite prophet Jonah to speak to them and to warn them. Uh, this was a sign to them because surely they knew about this guy and had heard about they, this is the guy they must have been thinking that, that got swallowed by the huge fish that spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish and now he's here speaking to us about the coming destruction of our city. Maybe we should listen to him. And so when the king and the people heard Jonah was preaching they repented and the Lord relented and did not destroy the city, which allowed uh, Nineveh to continue in history until later it became the capital of the Assyrian Empire. On top of the Nebuunis Mound was a mosque that Isis blew up in 2014, but underneath it were the ruins of a church that preserved the tradition that these were the ruins of Nineveh. In 1830, the British colonel, Robert Taylor, found among the ruins of Nebuunis, a six-sided prism covered with cuneiform writing. This inscription, often referred to as the Taylor Prism, is currently on display in the British Museum. So this is the Taylor Prism. The problem with the Taylor inscription is that back in 1830 when it was found, nobody could read a word of it. Northwest of Nebuunis is a second, much larger ancient mound called Kayunjik, and next to it flows the Koja River. So tradition and local knowledge and uh, the early explorers all identified the ruins across the Tigris River from Mosul to be those of Nineveh. However, by the mid-1800s, this had been brought into question because a few other scholars were identifying other sites as Nineveh. And so in order to establish these ruins as Nineveh, then evidence was going to have to be found and to do this, the site was going to have to be excavated. So in 1849, the British adventurer, Austin Henry Laird, became determined to put the massive mound of Kuyunjik to the spade. Based on the abundance of fragmented surface remains, Laird chose to begin his dig here, on the southwest corner of the mound. Laird struck a vertical shaft and at a depth of about 20 feet, his dig team hit a row of fired bricks. After some more clearing, it soon became evident that the wall belonged to a monumental building, and over the next several weeks, the largest palace ever excavated began to be unearthed. He determined from the surface material that this would be a good place to dig, and so he uh, immediately struck the ruins of this palace complex uh, behind me here. By 
lining the inside of the mud brick walls of the palace were slabs of gypsum, where elaborate scenes of hunting, military campaigns, and other glorious accomplishments of the king were carved into the stone. And in his palace here, you have the mud brick wall, and this really shows how these Assyrian wall reliefs work. You have this huge slab of stone here, pressed up against the wall, lining the wall, and on the outside of it are carvings of, of uh, statues and, and people and gods, and, uh, and then writing. If you follow me over here, um, you see the slab of stone pressed up against the mud brick wall, and then you see cuneiform writing on the outside of it. Back in uh, the time of Layard, what he did is he dug along the walls. In fact, it's estimated that he dug about two full miles of walls, where when he had a really well-preserved relief, stone relief, then he would take that off the wall and ship it back to the British Museum. As Layard's excavation crew were uncovering this huge palace, they found its central courtyard and they dug to the front of the courtyard where they unearthed these two huge human-headed winged bulls that were side by side. And as they uncovered them, they realized that they were guarding the entrance to something that further excavation showed was a monumental hallway. As Layard excavated, he prepared a top plan of the palace he was uncovering. So I have the plans, his drawings here, and then what I try to do is I try to match up his plan with the site itself and understand where I am. These are the ruins of the palace Layard excavated, and this is Layard's top plan. These three arrows show the three passages at the front of the central court, and here they are in the ruins. The most monumental of these three passages was the one in the middle. And I think that what we're doing is we're walking right, right through this gap right here on his plan as we walk through here. And you can follow me. When Laird began excavating the entrance to the central passage, his team found two human-headed winged bulls on either side of it. This proved to be just the beginning of a monumental hallway that led from the palace's central courtyard to its most important showroom. And so what we had here was a gap, and uh, then another gap, and a, a long hall going off of this main courtyard here. And at the end of that was the main showroom for the whole palace. Drinking coffee every day didn't work for me, but I couldn't figure out why until I went from 184 to 120. Looking straight down, we see the ruins of the monumental hallway leading from the central courtyard into the showroom. The walls of this room at the end of the hall were lined with stone reliefs depicting the siege of a single city. The question Laird wanted to know was what important city was this? and to which Assyrian king did the palace he was excavating belong. The original stone relief from this room is on display in the British Museum in London. 
where they have recreated the showroom Layard discovered. On the wall to the right of the showroom's entrance was a stone relief showing an Assyrian king sitting on a throne on top of a hill, watching the battle for the city. Above and to the left of the enthroned king was a short cuneiform inscription that solved the mystery. Since the decipherment of cuneiform was being advanced by scholars, in his book about his excavations, which he published in 1853. It read, Sennacherib, the mighty king, king of the country of Assyria, throne of judgment before the city of Lachish. I give permission for its slaughter. So keep in mind that, yes, they found the name Sennacherib engraved in stone, but this would have been meaningless except for the fact that Sennacherib is found in the Bible as the name of the Assyrian king whose capital is Nineveh. Second Kings 19.36 says, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, returned to Nineveh and stayed there. So now it was known with certainty with the finding and translation of this inscription and other inscriptions found in this excavation, it was known with certainty that the ruins across the Tigris River from Mosul, this was Nineveh. And the building that Laird was excavating was the palace of Sennacherib. And that this main showroom that uh, off of the main courtyard uh, was pointing to like a telescope was depicting the city of Lachish, the second most important city in the kingdom of Judah. And this was surprising because they were expecting it to be a much more important city, like the most important city of a nation, the most important city of an important nation. Uh, the most important city of the kingdom of Judah is the capital of Judah, which is Jerusalem. So why in this main showroom is it Lachish, the second most important city in the kingdom of Judah. The inscription on the Taylor prism could now also be read and was an inscription of none other than Sennacherib himself. On it, Sennacherib says, as to Hezekiah the Jew, he did not submit to my yoke. I laid siege to 46 of his strong cities, walled forts, and to the countless small villages in their vicinity and conquered them. Notice that Hezekiah, the king of Judah in the Bible is named by Sennacherib. This event is also recorded in the Bible. Isaiah chapter 36 says, In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. In the land of the Bible in the fall of the year, we have the olive harvest, which is very distinct because uh, it's very violent, actually, because the way that olives are harvested from the trees are literally, they're beaten out of the branches with these big sticks. And we have these falling olives. And so Isaiah uses this as a metaphor for the Assyrian invasion of Judah. And these falling olives that are being beaten out of the trees, these are the people dying, and these are the cities that are falling in the kingdom of Judah.
So these wing bowls were on either side from the central court, looking down to the Lakish room in Sennacherib's palace in Nineveh. Visible at the very end of the long monumental hall was the stone relief at the center of the back wall of the showroom, and carved on it was the siege ramp at Lakish. This is a stone picture of the siege of Lachish. And so you can see all these Assyrians coming up the siege ramp on either side here. You can see the, the huge war machines with the battering rams. So in 2 Chronicles 32.9, it says that while Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and his forces are laying siege to Lachish, that he sends his officers up to Jerusalem to deliver a message to Hezekiah and the people there. So we have the Bible and the Assyrian records coming together uh, in this event. This is the dramatic event between the Assyrian records and the Israelite records in the Bible. This is Tel Lachish, the mound of ruins of the city the Assyrians attacked in 701 BC. Since the Bible says that Sennacherib laid siege to Lachish, and since the stone reliefs from Sennacherib's palace show us a stone carving of the Assyrian siege ramp at Lachish, then it should not come as a surprise that in 1973 at Lachish, the Assyrian siege ramp was discovered and excavated. This is what the excavations looked like in 1973, and this is how they look today. And so you can see all these Assyrians coming up the siege ramp on either side. This is the Assyrian siege ramp on the Lachish reliefs, and outlined here is the Assyrian siege ramp being excavated at Tel Lachish. So I'm at Lachish, and behind me here is the Assyrian siege ramp going from ground level, all these pile of rocks, all the way up to the outer city wall. An earlier excavation had cut into the mound, leaving a vertical section. Later in 1973, when this vertical section was analyzed, it was realized that the mound that had previously been cut into was made up of a massive pile of small stones. All these stones that are about the size uh, that an Assyrian soldier could take and throw onto that pile. What you're looking at here is the exposed inner core of the pile of stones of the Assyrian siege ramp. Extending from ground level to the city wall of Lachish. Beyond this wall are the excavation squares that explore the inside of the city opposite the siege ramp. To give you an idea of how long the siege ramp is, how far it is from ground level up to the outer city wall, 
of Lachish, I'm going to have my son run up the seed ramp all the way to the wall, and I'll get a shot of him doing that to give you some perspective. Show your daughter how much you love her with this beautiful gift. It says, to my daughter. So this is the outer city wall of Lachish. This is where this massive uh, siege ramp comes up to. This is the specific area on the ground that is being depicted in the stone pictures that we have from Sennacherib's palace in Nineveh. This is where the people above are fighting for their lives, for their very existence, and where the Assyrians with their huge siege engines are uh, assaulting this wall. Archaeologically, all the things that you see depicted in the stone reliefs that are being thrown down from the walls, uh, the arrowheads, the sling stones, all that was found by the masses in this particular area. So behind me here where you see the houses, that's where the Assyrians set up camp. And I mean, can you imagine what the Judeans, the people of Lachish were thinking as they watched the most powerful army on earth come in and start setting up camp there. The Assyrians came in with an undefeated record. Every single city that they had laid siege to, they had taken. And the people in this city knew that. And so they must have felt an incredible amount of doom hanging over them as they watched the Assyrians set up camp uh, we know from the reliefs that uh, Sennacherib would take his position on this hill over here and watch the show. And the show was right here where they were building the siege ramp. And so these Assyrian soldiers would come and throw these rocks one at a time until estimated 19,000 tons of rocks were piled up to the base of the city wall. And the people were fighting for their very existence but they were no match for the Assyrians. The Assyrians did what they always did. They breached the city wall, burned the city, killed a bunch of the people, and sent the rest of them into exile. Nearby, a mass grave had been discovered that contained the remains of over 1,500 people who had been killed in the conflict. After capturing Lachish, the Assyrian army burned the entire city. After the fall of Lachish, the only fortified city that is left in the kingdom of Judah is the capital, Jerusalem, and the Assyrians lay siege to it. In his inscription, Sennacherib says, Hezekiah, I made a prisoner in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. Now, if the Assyrians capture Jerusalem, then that means God has broken his promise that from these people is going to come in the future the Messiah. And so God can't allow Jerusalem to be destroyed. So he delivers Jerusalem through a mighty miracle. 
2 Kings chapter 19 says, That night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. So in Sennacherib's inscription, he is listing out, boasting about his great accomplishments. And one of these is that he lays siege to Jerusalem, but he never mentions that he captures Jerusalem. Now Sennacherib is bragging about all the cities that he destroyed and the city that he puts in the most predominant place in his palace is the city of Lachish. There's no question that what the city he wanted to put there to brag about was Jerusalem. But he doesn't have Jerusalem in his main showroom. Why? Because according to his own records, according to the Bible, he never captured Jerusalem. And so he has the second most important city in Judah there instead. Um, this is archaeological evidence. Sennacherib never captured Jerusalem. The Bible says that that's because of a miracle. It's pretty easy to believe that it was because of a, a miracle, because of all the cities that the Assyrians attacked during the whole Assyrian Empire, all the way from north of where we are right now, all the way as far south to Egypt, and everywhere in between, every single city that, that the Assyrians attacked, laid siege to, they took, with one single exception. And that is the city of Jerusalem. We know this uh, from the Bible. We know this archaeologically from the Assyrian records that were found. And we know that from the archaeology right here in the palace of Sennacherib. The last mention of Nineveh in the Old Testament is Zephaniah's prophecy of the city's destruction. Zephaniah says, He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as a desert. Flocks and herds will lie down there. What a ruin she has become. Today, the once great city of Nineveh is a place where shepherds graze their flocks. The prophecies against her were fulfilled in 612 BC when the Babylonians and their allies completely destroyed the city that has laid in desolate ruins ever since for more than 2,400 years. So essentially what was discovered in Nineveh were the Assyrian records. And so now the Assyrian records could be compared with the Israelite records in the Bible. And especially in this shared event between these two records, which was the Assyrian conquest of Judah. And we find that the two agree. They're from two radically different perspectives, but they agree in the details and the events of what happened and who was in charge of them. And so we have the same kings named in both records. We have also the details of the events themselves of what happened, what was taken, what wasn't taken. I can't think of a site where everything comes together, the archeology, span the biblical record, the extra biblical record to demonstrate that the Bible is talking about real people, real places, real events, real destructions and real deliverances. And this is good news because we are in the same situation in the world today that they were back in the days of Nineveh. Isaiah in chapter 24 uses the metaphor of the beating of the olive tree again, but this time 
for the destruction of the whole earth. So will it be on the earth and among the nations as when an olive tree is beaten. We don't want to be like that last city of Nineveh that was proud and that was destroyed forever. We want to be like the people that lived in that earlier city of Nineveh who heard the preaching of Jonah and repented of their wickedness and therefore were spared. If you had compassion, as he tells Jonah, on the 120,000 people living in Nineveh, then why wouldn't he have compassion on the people, all the people living in the world? And he does, just as he sent the Ninevites a sign, so he sends uh, us a sign as well. And what, who is that sign? An Israelite, an Israelite Messiah. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. The sign is Jesus. He's the one that spent three days and three nights in the grave. But on that third day, he rose from the dead. Maybe we should listen to him. And if we listen to him and believe him, then we have salvation in his name. Uh, thanks for watching. I appreciate it. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Uh, it helps support the making of these videos. Also, uh, I'll leave a link in the description below where you can order a copy of my book. Keep in mind, it makes for a good gift to give to others as well. And uh... Okay, I know that this has a lot of Nineveh, which uh, Nahum is talking to, and what's going to happen to them. But the thing that I thought was striking is the way that he brought this about. And sometimes I think we just, we read the Bible and okay, that was something that happened or maybe it didn't happen and so on. Or we read history and we don't see how history fits in. But I thought this was a really striking example of how uh, the Bible and history match up and how... God's judgment on Jonah, on, on Noah, um, no, I'll get it right yet, <laughs> on Nineveh, God's judgment on Nineveh took place the way that he said that it would. And this is what Nahum is telling the people of, of, uh, of uh, Nineveh. He is telling them, you know, you have overstepped your bounds in the way that you have punished the Israelites, the Jews, and so you are going to now be punished also. Any questions that anybody has about this? Yes, John. Well, they did, but then when they built another city, they just trashed it and built over the top of it. So they never took away what was there originally. They just smashed it down and started another city on top of it, and they kept on going. And this is why we're able to determine so many layers of civilization, because we can go back down through this. Yeah.
There's lots of rocks in Palestine, in Israel. <laughs> so anyway, uh, and there, there are plenty of rocks there. And they use their soldiers, their army, and slaves to do this. And uh, they didn't have anything else to do, so they just kept on working with it. Any other questions that you have? Joel Kramer has about 40 of these YouTube videos. And uh, if you have some spare time sometime, you might want to uh, take a look at some of them, uh, some very interesting ones that he has. J Joel Kramer, yeah, J-O-E-L and then K-R-A-M-E-R. And it's also biblical evidence uneathed at, at Nineveh. That will get you to this specific YouTube, but biblical evidence will get you to a lot of his uh, YouTube. Any other questions? Okay. Uh, as he said, this, this city, Nineveh, is where Musal, Iraq, is now located. And uh, we... Uh, Continue on then with, we've just got a few minutes yet, in uh, Nineveh, or Nahum chapter 2. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. So uh, we have, Nahum is now warning Nineveh what is going to happen to them. And we see the, what actually did happen to them from the ruins that uh, Kramer and those people were able to, um, to uncover. So God is going to be bringing judgment to Nineveh. And uh, the judgment that he's going to bring is going to be just as sure as the judgment that he's going to be bringing uh, later on says, for the Lord in restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Okay, so verse 1 is talking about what's going to happen to Nineveh. Verse 2 is telling that the Israelites, the Jews, that they are going to be restored and that they are not going to end up... Um, totally destroyed. And as Kramer pointed out, the Assyrians had captured every single city that they had gone after, except for Jerusalem. They were not able to capture Jerusalem. And uh, this was a sore spot with Sennacherib, but the Lord is actually prophesying this through Nahum, in chapter 2, verse 2, that the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob. And then we see the preparations that they're going to make. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches, they dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go, they hasten to the wall, the siege tower is set up. 
So we're seeing here that now Nahum is talking about what's happening at Nineveh. That we have this seed ramp that's being built, and he's telling the, the, the Christians in Nineveh, these are the things that are going to uh, be taking place. And so we're looking for the destruction uh, of Nineveh. But at the same time, he is comforting Judah, uh, the children of Jacob, in verse 2. Now when it talks about the, uh, the chariots come with flashing metal, the word metal is only used one other time in the Old Testament. Uh, the Hebrew word that's translated as metal here. So it could be metal that they actually had armor plates that they were wearing, or it could have also been uh, very finely polished leather. And you get some thick leather, this is uh, pretty resistant to the type of weapons that they had at that time, so they could be the, just the, the sparkle of the shiny leather that they had. Then it also said that the cypress spears are brandished. Now, this could be cypress. There are some versions of the Old Testament that have it being pine brandished. But it's also the word that's used here for cypress spears could be the, the vibrating that's occurred. And if you've ever seen a spear that's been thrown and stuck into something, it kind of vibrates just a little bit. So it could be referring to that also, that the spear is making contact with the individuals and it's, and it's vibrating. We also see in verses 4 the chaos that is occurring. The chariots are racing back and forth and it's, uh, they're being overrun by this. Now when it talks about in verse 5, he remembers his officers, they stumble as they go, we're not sure. This could be the defenders that are stumbling under the attack from the Assyrians, or it could be the attackers, and that the Assyrians, as they were attacking, that uh, maybe they were tired, maybe they had been inebriated to be able to carry out this activity and all of the horrible uh, things that they were doing. Uh, we're not sure whether... Um, what this is referring to. But evidently, we have a situation that's just, uh, just total chaos that's occurring here. And uh, we see the, the siege tower is mentioned here once again, which Kramer uh, was showing the siege ramp going on up. Okay, we have any other questions on this? Now, I was going to finish up next Sunday with Nahum, but I forgot that we don't have Sunday school next Sunday, and I'm not going to be here the Sunday following. I'm going to be enjoying the sunshine with Doug and Gina down in California, but I need somebody to take me to the airport on Saturday the 17th, so if, uh, I'll pay for gas, so anyway, if somebody wants to do that, Pardon, John? Okay, all right. So we've got uh, someone, and my son Scott told me that last night. He said, you just mentioned in Sunday school, and you'll have people that will say that they'll take you. So thank you very much.
Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Fathers, we come to you. We thank you once again for being with us this morning. We thank you for the evidences that we have in the land where you were at that the account in the Bible is something that can be trusted. We ask now that you would continue to guide and direct as we go into the study of Revelation. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen.